guys, this is Christy, also known as Enoshima Cosplay. I'll be appearing at the Melbourne Toy and Comic Con on October 21st. I'll be helping out at the Tin Universe table, so make sure you stop by. Uh, we can talk about cosplay, we can take some photos, and you can even purchase a print from me if you'd like. Um, there's also going to be a Naruto-themed giveaway if you're interested. <laughs> so I hope to see you there. Welcome to Shortlisted, the podcast where we take a top 10 list from the internet and talk about it for 60 minutes. We just set a timer, talk for an hour, and then shut up whether or not we've made it through the list. So, Aaron, what have you been up to? Um, I have moved. I have moved from Virginia to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and um, yeah, big, big, big adventure. <laughs> How about you? Uh, going to school working too much, doing too many projects. <laughs> yeah, so basically we both have all the time in the world. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. No problem. <laughs> we could probably do like a top ten of reasons why we haven't recorded the past few months. <laughs> yes. Well, I was trying to figure it out today when we were talking about which one we were going to record because we had, you made this lovely schedule and now... <laughs> And then we, we never kept to it. I know. So, that's all right. We're back on track now. Yeah. Like, we had moving, travel. Mm -hmm. I think I fell asleep, like, twice when we were supposed to record. <laughs> I feel like there was some illness in there at some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's been a little bit of a rough go. And... So. And you've, like, uh, had some changes on your podcast, haven't you? Yeah. So we had um, – Jordan is taking a break of an undefined time, which might be she'll come on occasionally and say hey. Um, and so now I have Diana Seacon as my new co-host, who was a fan and then a Patreon supporter and then now my co-host. Cool. So that is, is awesome. And actually, we've got some more exciting podcast-related news, but uh, doesn't we can't say anything until September. But then um, we're going to have some additional changes that are going to be great. Oh, that will be really cool. Yeah. Uh, so the jump in, which list we own? <laughs> uh, I believe we're doing top ten writers who disowned their work. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> No surprises then. <laughs> I just realized that I spent the entire first part of this conversation trying to log into Facebook because that's what I was doing when you called because I was going to let you know that I was ready. And so I just now got logged into Facebook and realized that the whole point was to tell you I was ready and we're already talking. This might be a rough recording, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, believe me, no, I know I've been working like 12-hour shifts every day. And so <laughs> oh, that's insane. Is it boiling hot there? Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. It is surprisingly boiling hot here. Um, like 90s and 70% humidity and just I really was not – I did not do my research about Minnesota summers because they feel like Virginia summers. Yeah, I had to go to Colorado for – not Colorado. 
I don't know why I say Colorado. I went to Kansas for a training uh, a couple months ago, and I was expecting it to be a little bit, at least a little bit cooler than here, and it turned out right. to be really hot. Yeah, yeah, the whole world is, is boiling. <laughs> That's about true. <laughs> yeah, it certainly feels like it. So, top ten writers who disowned their work. Yes, we ready? Yep. Alright, so I'm going to read the introduction. This is on top10s.net and written by Drew Anderson. It says, for most writers, there's a feeling of catharsis that accompanies having a book published. You had something to say, and now it's out there for the world to view. It may become a bestseller, or it might move five copies, all to your mom. But either way, you created something meaningful. Your high school classmates were wrong about you, just like you always knew. <laughs> but sometimes that euphoric feeling doesn't last. Sometimes it turns to downright loathing. Here are ten writers who hated, hid, or simply pretended books they wrote didn't exist. Number ten, Ian Fleming, The Spy Who Loved Me. 1961-62 was a good time to be Ian Fleming. His James Bond novels were consistent bestsellers. Production had begun in the first Bond film, Dr. No. Despite all this, Fleming wasn't happy after learning his adult thrillers were increasingly being read by school children who idolized James Bond. So he resolved to write a book showing his famous spy from the other end of the gun barrel, a sort of cautionary tale about a civilian who gets caught up in Bond's world. The result was The Spy Who Loved Me, told from the perspective of an ordinary woman, Vivian Michael, or Michelle, who chronicles such espionage staples as losing her virginity in a movie theater, becoming a secretary, aborting her boss's baby, and managing, at a, fail managing a failing motel until mobsters try to torch it and her for the insurance money. Bond himself doesn't appear until two-thirds of the way into the book to dispatch the thugs, seduce Vivian, and leave before the final chapter. Whatever Fleming was going for, it didn't work. Critics panned the new Bond novel in spite of ultra-progressive dialogue as all women's love semi-rape. They love to be taken. It was his sweet brutality against my bruised body that had made his act of love so piercingly beautiful. Reviews were not so piercingly beautiful, and Fleming, stunned, declared the experiment a failure and requested that no paperback version or hardcover reprints be issued. The next novel proceeds as if The Spy Who Loved Me never happened, and Fleming would only allow the title to be used for a movie if it had nothing to do with the book's plot. For all that, it did give us one lasting contribution to the Bond canon, horror, a gangster with steel-capped teeth who inspired the infamous film Henchman Jaws. Uh, first, have you read an uh, Ian Fleming novel? I have not. I have seen some some James Bond, but um, no. The novel, like when I was little, my dad loved James Bond movies, so we we is one of the things we bonded on was like James Bond movies. But yeah. the the novels are totally different. Like he, he's not a hero at all in any way in the books, in a lot of ways. But they're also very dry, like. Dry, dry. <laughs> really? Yeah, like they're very like the writing style is very. It's, it's technically all right, I guess, but it's like there's nothing exciting. It doesn't get you in. Like he literally in like I think it's the very first one spends like two chapters telling you how to play a certain card game. What on earth? That's nothing like a James Bond movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it's they're not very 
good at all and stuff. But like, it's, it's it, Bond's weird, like in some ways, like that, because like you also have the movie rights, which were weird and tied up, and some of them don't count, and it's like they're all weirded out. Uh huh. Yeah, because like uh, I don't know if you know the story, like when Sean Connery left, he had one more contract to do a movie. So then Roger Moore took over, and then somebody bought the rights to that contracted movie, so they made two Bond movies that were basically the same movie around the same time. Okay. But Sean Connery was older at the time, so it, it's kind of a weird, like, thing with the Bond movies. Right. And, huh. And I, I really, I really don't, don't know much about them at all, all either. either. Like, like, I, um, I, I have, have seen, seen a couple, couple uh... I think it was uh, Pierce Brosnan Bond. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's the one I've seen. Yeah, there, there's been like uh, Sean Connery, Roger Moore, George Lazerby did it for one movie. That's more famous because Diana Rigg from New Avengers was in it than anything. Uh, right. Let's see, who was after him? Roger Moore. Oh, Timothy Dalton. And then mm-hmm. Pierce Brosnan. And then Daniel Craig, and I guess they're ta- saying the rumor is Adris Elba might be the next Bond. Interesting. So like, yeah. So, so do, do you, you watch, watch a lot of Bond? Is that something that you are into, or? Yeah, I tend to like watch them because, like I said, the, like the connection with my dad. So I tend to uh, watch them. Right. As a writer, like looking at like stuff, you like I think writers though like. You could say it about almost everything they write, in a way. Yeah. Because, like, you look back at books and say, like... Like, people ask me, like, is there stuff you don't like that you're written? Like, I'm like, yeah, tons of it. And there's stuff I don't even agree with at the at time I wrote, like, years ago and right. stuff like that. But I think right. just totally getting rid of it, you don't learn the lesson from it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I can see that. So, like, even, I, Yeah, go ahead. What's that? Uh, like, even, like, my stuff, which is all ebooks and stuff, like, people are like, well, uh-huh. why don't you go back and edit everything to it? And it's like, well, that's that. I moved on from that. Lesson learned. Right. That was, that was a writing practice. Now I've, I'm doing something different. Yeah. Yeah, I've done several, um, National Novel Writing Month challenges where I've written, I mean, I guess they're novels. I don't, they aren't even, like, proofread or anything, because that's, like, sprint writing, so yeah. you're not... You're not planning. You're not doing any of that kind of stuff. Um, and I'm very proud to have finished them and to have written that many words and told a complete story. But they're absolute shit. Like, I, <laughs> I would not anyone read them. Um, I printed a copy of each one, and they are in my house, but they are hidden. <laughs> just because I want you know, like, those were my words. I did that work. I want to see it as a book, but that's it. It doesn't get to see the light of day. <laughs> yeah, I did... Uh, uh like the NaNoWriMo like I did it for like six years straight like, yeah and I loved it it's like like a lot of fun like you you, yes. you write that book and you like and of course it's not like a publishable novel like you can't write a book that quick and that many words without being publishable it's not that hard to do but it's fun to do no yeah yeah, yeah. um I was much more successful at it when I was still teaching English because I would incorporate it into my class. Like we would have writing time every day and I would use that time to write and so it was sort of 
double duty. I was modeling being a writer while also making some progress on my personal challenge, which was super nice. Now it is much harder to incorporate into my day. <laughs> it seems I've gotten busy. But yeah, it's a great thing. I, well, and I love that there are some books that have come out of NaNoWriMo that, um, that are now published books, like Rainbow Rowell has one, and um, there, oh gosh, there was one about an elephant or something like that, um, that was pretty big in our middle school for a while. Um, but I just think that's very cool. Like, I am sure that what they wrote in November had nothing looked nothing like what they yeah. ended up publishing but it's cool that that's how they started yeah i stopped doing it just because i didn't have like i got so many other projects and stuff like yeah and I, I usually work on one book a year so that's my book i work on and the rest of the stuff like it takes up a lot of time john green the yeah. writer do you know who john green is the writer uh-huh like, yeah he, he did one one year and he released it that raw book like, you can oh, find wow. it online where he put it out. I think it's, like, a zombie book or something like that. He just wrote, like, one draft all the way through and then released it without. That's that's scary, <laughs> but also awesome. Uh, I know a lot of people do now is they do the live writing. Where you can, like, you stream it while you write. Oh, wow. So, like, actually, as you're writing, not just, like, a daily chunk yeah, like, I've uh, I've thought about, like, I got to figure out the pro. I actually have the program on my computer to do it, but I just got to figure out how to use it. But it's like you can stream it, basically streams your Word file right there as you're writing it. Oh, no. Mm -mm. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not up for that. I'm, I would be happy to do an anonymous, like, here's what I wrote today kind of thing. But also, I don't know that my live writing would make a whole lot of sense. Because with NaNoWriMo, one of the things I've always done is if I start to get in a rut, I'll skip to another part that I have thought about. And so I don't even write it in order. Like, you wouldn't – it's not a continuous story until I put it back in order. I don't know. But I think no, it, I wouldn't want anyone to watch me write. <laughs> I think that would be – I think that would be interesting if you were watching someone who was well-known or something like that. And yes. you see what they do, but besides like a normal person, like any other person, I don't think it would be as interesting to watch them do it. Right? Yeah, yeah. I would, I would watch like take it rolling do it. That would be great. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you would. You'd be like, can... I have a little obsession in that area, though. Right? <laughs> we know. You'd be like, can I make this thing like look around her house? <laughs> right. I just watch you write like I'll sit behind you and I won't talk I swear and if you want tea I'm on it <laughs> before we get on Harry Potter we'll move on to our next book <laughs> right yes rolling is not on this list I just want to point that out but this one surprised me um, because number nine is Stephen King um, but he was writing as Richard Bachman and the book is Rage it says it's easy to make fun of Stephen King these days for the sheer volume of his body of work and some of the more, well, hokey concepts like killer trucks, really Stephen. But it's also easy to forget how many of his books, especially the early ones, were genuinely terrifying and in one instance, tragically prescient. The first novel King ever wrote, Rage, tells the story of a high schooler who brings a gun to school, kills two teachers, and holds his class hostage only for them to begin empathizing with him in a creepy Tyler Durness fashion. 
The reason for this book's censorship is unfortunately obvious. After a spate of school shootings in recent years, a novel told from the perspective of the killer isn't something King wants serving as possible inspiration. At least one real-life shooter was reported to have had a copy of Rage in his locker, so King and his publishers jointly agreed not to publish any future editions. Considering he wrote the story when he was still in college, he's probably just lucky that he didn't get flagged as a potential risk case himself by school administrators. This this book's reason why I wanted to do this list. Yeah. Because this actually got me in trouble in college for talking about this in a classroom. Yeah. Because I a teacher brought it up and the te- the professor was wanting to discuss how writers should be responsible for what they wrote. And, yeah. and that, okay, I was a college student, and as we know, all college students know everything, okay? Everything, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I got really mad about it, and I was like, one, I think he's a coward for getting rid of the book or disavowing it. I was like, you gotta, you gotta be firm, you gotta own it, or whatever. Yeah, and I was like, and the teacher was like, well, what if my kids get something and they go do something, and then I, of course, being a smart ass was like, well, I didn't take your kids to raise. <laughs> and it caused a big stir <laughs> in the classroom. So, like, uh, this has always been kind of, like, an interesting subject for me because, like, in a lot of ways, I understand him being upset by it. But yeah, personally, like, I'm, like, the personal responsibility with a lot of people I don't think is, like, yeah, you can be influenced with something, but usually when somebody does something bad, they'll find any kind of influence to make them want to do it. Yes, yeah. It, there was something else going on there other than they read this book. Right? Yeah. Like, there was, it, that wasn't the sole cause. I, I agree. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I think I'm just torn because on the one hand... Yeah, you can't just read a book or watch a movie or play a video game and be like, oh, no, that's why. That's why I did this horrible thing. Like, no, you did that horrible thing. On the other hand, I know that I tend to be very emotionally influenced by things that I read or watch or listen to. Um, And they would never cause me to go out and make a decision like that. But I can see how maybe if you were leaning that way, then that really did push you along, right? It gave you that last little bit of whatever needed to happen. So I'm kind of torn about that. Um, What it made me think of, though, is in high school, I was friends with a kid who, um, his name was Ben. Yeah, it was Ben. Um, And he, we had to do for the Virginia SOL, which was like the state testing, the standards testing. It had not come out yet when I was in high school, but we were sort of a trial group for it. And so we did a writing assignment, and the assignment was write about what you're going to leave, you know, you're a senior in high school, what is going to be your parting gift to your class? And we were the class of 2000, and then he wasn't even a dumb guy, but in this case he was such an idiot, and he wrote about how he would leave 2000 bombs in the school, where he would place them, you know, who he would want to go after. And it wasn't that long after Columbine, and it was just, he never, would never, ever, ever do that. It was his stupid, like, this sounds funny, I don't want to do this writing test, no one's going to read it anyway, I'm going to write this 
this, you know, fiction. Um, then he wore an ankle bracelet his entire senior year. <laughs> so, yeah. That well, did not turn out for him. I know, like, if, if, not that I was, like, planning anything or anything like that, but I know if they'd gotten hold of a lot of my journals and the stories I was writing when I was, like, in high school and stuff, they would have probably like, locked me up somewhere. Yeah. You know? Oh, no, it was same with me. Like, just some of the the content they would have been concerned about my mental health i just was you know experimenting with what then has now become like a true crime podcast kind of <laughs> obsession but you know in in or not elementary school in middle school and high school wouldn't have been it would have been upsetting if i had taken something like that from a student when i was a teacher i would have been concerned it makes me want to ask a question if you would know this and you probably don't know with the way the internet is do y'all have a lot of young followers for your podcast? Um, I don't know. I know that we have, I know that the people that I interact with tend to be closer to our ages. So like late twenties to forties ish range. Um, I know that we have, there are some podcasters that we've exchanged reviews and listens and that kind of thing with that are um, maybe like mid-20s. Um, and I know that my mother had my nephew, who is 13, listen to this. But I, it's marked on everything as like explicit. So my hope is that we don't. I mean, not that I don't, like we're not giving bad messages, but I just feel like that's, it's kind of rough stuff for yeah. I was just curious because like 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 we were talking about like when I was young I was really into like stereotypical morbid yeah. lo loner kid and all that stuff and I, I just wonder like like the stuff yeah. that that we got away with in a way by it not being open because we were like either reading a book or writing in a journal somewhere that somebody had to actually physically get a hold of these kids c can be tracked almost online by what they look at online and what they listen sure. to and everything else so their lives might look worse or look more disturbing but they just didn't know how we were then right right yeah there's just no paper trail for us <laughs> yeah. no i think that's true and i honestly i mean i there's not any way to tell like through itunes or anything like that they don't share any data anyway but even if they did they don't know who their listeners are necessarily um but if, if we do have a lot of younger listeners, they are not reaching out in our, you know, kind of hokey mom kind of Facebook group we've got going on. So. The mom crime crazy. Pretty much. We like to think we're cool, but we know better. Wait until your kids start podcasting and they'll be like, Mom, time for the young people. Right. Well, I mean, my five-year-old and I do an occasional podcast <laughs> together called Tobin Talks. He tells me about his video games, and then I try to edit it to make it more interesting. <laughs> so it's only a matter of time. <laughs> so what do we got next? All right. Martin Amos, which I believe is how you say his name, or Amos. I'm not really sure. Invasion of the Space Invaders. If you have never heard of Martin Amos, don't feel bad. It just means you're an uncultured, semi-literate... Oh. <laughs> Apparently I'm an uncultured, semi-literate. At least according to the Times, who rated him number 19 on the list of the 50 greatest Brit British authors since 1945. 
His father, Kingsley Annis, was number nine, meaning the old guy can literally claim to be twice the author his son is. These days, Martin writes serious books and gets into pissing matches with other authors about things like radical Islamism. Which is probably why he's not eager to claim credit for the 1982's Invasion of the Invasion of the Space Invaders, an addict's guide to battle tactics, big scores, and best machines. It's exactly what it sounds like, a guide to early video games that Amos is extremely reluctant to discuss or even acknowledge writing. Hard to imagine since it boasts an introduction by Steven Spielberg and is filled with fantastic bon mots like, do I take risks in order to gobble up the fruit symbol in the middle of the screen? I do not, and neither should you. Like the fat and harmless saucer in Missile Command, the fruit symbol is simply there to tempt you into hubristic story, sorties, baggage. And Pac-Man player, be not proud nor too macho. You will prosper on the dotted screen. A reporter once suggested to Amos, probably in jest, that this was one of the best things he'd ever written, and then noted the expression on his face with perhaps more pity in it than contempt remains with me uncomfortably. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I this kind of want to read it. It sounds really epic. <laughs> A lot of writers have, like, a lot of books that people either don't know about, like, stuff that Ghost wrote and stuff like that in the beginning, uh, or stuff that, like, it's strange. Like, my favorite author is Neil Gaiman. Yes. And, like, his first book is really hard to find. It's the Duran Duran biography, or autobiography. I always get those confused. But <laughs> he wrote Duran Duran from the musical 80s group. Like, that's, like, his first thing, and it's so hard to find. Uh-huh. Because nobody wanted it. Like, and, like, he, he embraces it. Like, he, he's, like, no problem with it. But I know a lot of authors that have stuff like that that they don't want to have anything to do with. Right. Yeah. And, well, and this one sounds like it's... I mean, I guess it's still nonfiction, which sounds like what he's writing now. But um, definitely a different topic than what he has to say. Yeah, you should just embrace that, like. <laughs> right? Well, it doesn't sound like a huge flop either. Like, it's the Stephen King one, okay, I can get kind of the political stuff, whatever. The the James Bond one, yeah, that sounds like a total disaster, so feel free to hide. This one's just, what, not his style anymore? It sounds fine. Yeah, I think so. It's like the thing where some people, like movie actors and uh like movie people always say like oh that thing I did and it's awful and it sucks and it's like terrible and, yeah. it's, and it's like why are you crapping on that thing you made <laughs> right yeah, like, I don't get that like when people do stuff like that it's why I was always told I was a bad reviewer when I used to review stuff it's cause people would oh. be like you like most things yeah yeah and I'm like okay. no, I mean I can see that that would not that's not a good um critic it, like it's a it's a good person i would want you to read all of my stuff <laughs> but ultimately it probably wouldn't make me any better of a writer right yeah. and like when i write stuff like i've always had ability and it's probably what keeps me from totally like ever stopping it's like i'll like something and almost everything i've written yeah so i might write write a book and i'll be like oh i remember this one part of it i love that one part that one part was really good even if the rest of it was awful <laughs> right so like 
I, I can get, like, some authors and some creators not liking stuff, but, like, totally distance themselves from it. Yeah. I don't really identify with that too much. Yeah. But I'm not a perfectionist either, so. <laughs> you're, you're, you're more adventurous than that. Yeah, I just, like, make stuff and move on from it. <laughs> right. Well, and so I wonder if it would feel any different if, like, tomorrow somebody found one of your books and you became wildly successful and, like, internationally famous. If that would make you feel any different about the works that you've done that you're not as proud of. Well, that would be interesting to know. I know, like, about three and a half years ago, I had somebody that wanted to, it wasn't a big press, but they wanted to publish some of my works. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to, like, give a big money or anything like that or anything. They wanted, like, you know, share profits and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was fine with that. I didn't have any problem. Their problem was they wanted me to pull everything I've done offline. Gotcha. Because they didn't yeah. want any of that to be online. And I said, no, I didn't yeah. want to do that. Because I just, that's my stuff. That's the stuff I worked hard on. And that's stuff where I can see from the very first thing I did, either whether it's the first book or the first podcast, I think I've improved through it. Yeah. And me not being able to see that, that would be bad for me. It's important to me to be able to see that progress. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I go go back back and and forth forth with, with our earlier episodes of Crime Crazy, because now that we've figured things out and we got our sound under control and we've gotten better at the research and the editing and all of that, and we have, you know, some, not a ton of of listeners and followers and all of that, but some, you know, like a consistent number, I go back and forth about, like, do I take down the first seven or so episodes where the sound quality sucks and the content isn't all that great and we obviously didn't know what we were doing just so that nobody listens to those and thinks, well, I'm not going to listen to the rest of this. Like, this is what they're doing. Or do I leave it up because that's part of our story? And that's where I, that's sort of like what I think you're saying is that like, that's part of our journey. That's, that's, that's part of it. It's not the pretty part, but it's the part of it. And you're more, more, I don't want to use perfectionist in a bad way, but you're more picky, I guess. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. I Well, and I, I like all of that sort of tedious yeah. editing and everything else. Like, I, I want things that people see to be, like, what I'm picturing them as and not just, I'm not brave. I think that's really what it comes down to is I'm not willing to put anything out there too much. I I like working to a point where I'm like, okay, I can't get any better until I do more. Like, that's the way I was with sound equipment. I was like, okay, I'm fine with it. And then I got to a point where I was like, I'm not fine with it. I need to move on to something else now. Yeah. And to me, that's where it's like the step for moving on. It's almost like when you're a young writer and you do fan fiction. Uh Uh-huh. You do that for a while. That's a learning process. Then at yeah. some point, you move on from that, I think. If you want to be, like, a, a writer that does more, I think you if you move on from that in a way. It's like a phase thing. And I'm like that with podcasting or anything else. Like, And that's why I don't mind 
having that stuff out there. But I do know right. podcasters have deleted their early episodes totally off. Yeah, I, I'm just so torn because I feel like we reference our cases and we talk about the content of those early episodes, so I don't want it to not make sense. Plus, it feels inauthentic. Like, we... I am not saying by any means that we are, like, incredibly amazing now. I'm pretty proud of what we're putting out, but, like, you know, whatever. Um, but we sucked a lot in the beginning. <laughs> it was rough. So, I... I think, I think for now, though, it's part of that journey, right? It's, like, yeah. where we came from, that's where it's going to be, so. Well, it's like when you have, like, when I do a, an interview and it's not great audio or anything. Mm-hmm. One, I think it would be a waste of that person's time if they, if I just deleted it or something like that. Yeah, and, yeah. And, two, like, most of the time there's something I think is important in there, even if the quality is not great. And yeah. stuff, and somebody could learn from me. Yeah. Like, what? Why did this happen? What did you learn as you went through? And I'd be like, Well, I learned to do this. I'm still learning how to do my mic soon, like the board mm-hmm. and, and all that stuff. Like, the board thing confuses me. There's too many buttons everywhere. Oh my oh god, god, so, so many, many knobs. <laughs> I, same thing. I actually went into a shop recently. It was a guitar shop, but they had a bunch of audio equipment and. They had the the one that I've got, and I said, okay, this is what I want to do with it. I think it should be able to do it. I can't figure it out. They explained it to me. I had it. I went home. I tried. No. There, it just so many words. <laughs> well, I was using my Yeti mic forever before I found out that the Skype recorder had to be set to the Yeti mic, or it wasn't recording it, so it wasn't even using it. Oh, no. <laughs> memoir of the first woman ever to play in the National Hockey League. Don DeLillo is a renowned author and playwright, part of the postmodern literature movement in the U.S. In recent years, noted critic and pretentious guy, Harold Bloom, described him as one of only four living American novelists who are still writing and deserve our praise. Be that as it may, the one book of DeLillo's that you would probably enjoy the most is the one that is the only one you won't find on his official list of published, published works. That would be The Amazons, which Delilio co-wrote in 1980 after a string of six well-reviewed but financially disappointing novels. A humorous faux autobiography, Amazons, tells the story of Cleo Birdwell, the first woman to play, in, to play hockey in the NHL, which apparently largely consists of sleeping with your coaches and teammates. By all accounts, it's actually pretty funny, but Delilio has never publicly not acknowledged writing the book and specifically asked to have it left off his official bibliography, which is a shame, because if more award-winning geniuses took occasional breaks from their serious works to do something funny and lowbrow, the other 99% of us would probably pay more attention to the rest of their stuff. I just think that... Um, <laughs> who wrote this article? Let's see. I read it at the beginning. Drew Anderson... I would, I would like, like him, him to write about this. This is very amazing to me. I have to say I don't I don't even remember reading anything about like like uh 
any first woman to play like professional hockey. Like I've known like the first baseball players, female baseball players, basketball players, uh-huh. even football players, but never like hockey. Yeah, no, no I, I hadn't really given it a thought. I, I, so, so this will just, just totally alienate our, our half of our, our listeners. listeners. I, I, I don't, don't, and maybe you, I'm not sure. <laughs> Hockey and football, I feel like women should be smarter than to play those. <laughs> <laughs> we, should we should just leave, leave that, that to the guys who want brain damage, damage for the rest, rest of their lives. lives. I don't know anything about it. I do think it's pretty badass to, like, want to play with men and know that you're going to get super hurt and not be accepted and everything else, although it sounds like this heroine did not so much go that route, but... Yeah, like, it's interesting thinking of it that way, like, be smarter. <laughs> yeah, well, I just, that's, that's like one of my rules with my kids, right, that Tobin is allowed to do whatever he wants in life. If, if he, he wants, wants to dance, dance he can dance. dance. If, if he, he wants, wants to play soccer, soccer he can play soccer. But, like, football and hockey are out. And I realize I just moved to the wrong part of the country for hockey to be out, but hockey's out. <laughs> he has a wonderful brain, and I love it, and he is not allowed to ruin it. <laughs> it's pretty, like, like baseball, I mean, like, uh, football and hockey's, I mean, pretty brutal. Like, mm-hmm. there's no, like, getting around that point. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, and, um, I think Wine and Crime talked about some, they did an episode about traumatic, um, what is it, uh, I'm not going to be able to remember the acronym right now, but, like, when you get the, re- the all of the concussions over and over and over again, it eventually damages your brain and you end up with something, you know, sort of Parkinson's-like or whatever else, um, traumatic brain encephalopathy, I think. Anyway, the statistics on football players at all levels who have this brain damage, it's like almost 100%. It's really, really bad. So, and it depends on what position you play, but I just, that seems like a really big risk. Yeah, it is, like, huge. Did you see the study about, like, uh, soccer players, though? I bet that's probably not any better. I said soccer, and then I was like, no, maybe, maybe baseball. Well, because of the... <laughs> Because of hitting the ball with your head. Yeah, and everybody knows yeah. soccer balls aren't soft. No. They're hard. And I yeah. guess, because in some places they're talking about taking that headers out from like little, like, uh, like the peewee versions of, uh, like soccer and stuff because of the header, that doing yeah. head injuries. Because you just don't think about it. But, like, for somebody, like, I had a bad concussion when I played sports in high school once. Like, don't remember a couple of days and all that stuff. Oh, my Like, but they say that one of those is really severe. That's, like, a really severe bad concussion when you get one of those. But yeah. even, like, ten years ago, there was probably people in professional sports that would get, you know, ten of those a year. Not a big oh, deal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Troy Aikman, the kind of famous football player who used to play for the Dallas Cowboys said he had to basically relearn how to write at yeah. one point. And that, that's, that's scary when you think about it. It is. It's crazy. I don't... And now they're thinking know. it's causing stuff like uh, uh, not only suicide rates in, like, professional athletes, like, when they did studies on, on like, 
pressure athletes that ended up killing people. They learned that they yeah. got the same thing in their brains and stuff, and it's like, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just, uh, it's not my thing. I, there are lots of things that I know that I do that are risky and unhealthy, and ultimately we're all going to die, but I just don't love those sports at all. Um, and so certainly not enough to make it part of that risk. <laughs> well, yeah, and you got to think, like, even, like, when we were younger, a uh, professional athlete being almost knocked out, and they used to make videos of that all the time. They used to sell them. Sports Illustrated, they used to sell, like, you would get the no greatest knockout to the NFL. Yeah. And now, like, they're like, whoa, no, we're protecting them. It's like, you can't really protect them in a sport like that. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 No, there's there's, there's not, not any amount of helmet that's gonna keep your brain from jostling around inside your skull when you hit it really hard. I don't think we've talked in a while, so we've talked a lot. <laughs> uh, it's true. I was just I was trying to remember why we got on the topic of sports, but I got it. All right. So keep going. Yeah. All right. Number six. Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Most of his poetry. <laughs> As the name implies, Dante Rossetti was born into the artistic lifestyle. His uncle created the modern vampire story, his siblings all became writers, and his wife, Elizabeth Siddall, was the prominent artist's model, posing for Ophelia and other works. Dante himself founded a prominent artistic movement, but between painting and writing poetry, also found time to sleep with plenty of women. Surprisingly, Elizabeth was not down with this. Chips, right? And her husband's infidelities contributed to her depression and possible intentional laudanum overdose. Rossetti was devastated, but his response was just a bit extreme. He slipped a notebook full of poems he had been re readying for publication into Siddle's hair in her coffin and then had it buried with her. Which is creepy, but slightly romantic if you squint hard enough, except unlike some of the others on this list, Rossetti eventually changed his mind, and if you think you know where this is going, congratulations on being right. Yes, several years later, he had Settle exhumed to recover the notebook. While worms had eaten through parts of the pages, you only wish we were kidding, the poems were eventually published, albeit not to any great acclaim. Meanwhile, Rossetti reportedly felt wretchedly guilty over violating his wife's grave for the rest of his, of his life, as one does, and I would add, as one should. I, uh... Be like, I forgot I left something in there, I gotta get it back out. Right? I... Yeah. It, it was, was weird, weird to put, to put it, it in there, except, except I kind of get it. Like, uh, okay. I'm good with that sort of sacrifice to try to make up for the shit that he did to her. But it was really weird to get it out. Especially uh, worms had eaten through it. Like, mm, no. Rewrite it. Mm-hmm. Like... I've written, it's weird when I think about this, I've written, like, uh, stuff one time and given as gifts. Like, you know, uh -huh. that's the only copy, like a hard copy, and then giving it to people for gifts. And, like, that stuff's probably, like, been thrown away because we all know people throw away cards and everything like that. So I, w I wonder, like, 
Like, what did he just click in his head one day and be like, you know those poems I wrote that time? Those were really good poems. I gotta go right. get them. <laughs> I'm gonna have my wife, whose death I might be responsible for in some part, dug up so I can take back the gift I gave her. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I mean, I get that you can't reproduce something that you created years ago and have it be the same, whatever. But I feel like in this case, maybe like try to remember some of those ideas and create something new. <laughs> Go from there. Yeah. And I. I yeah. <laughs> All right. Number five. Erge. Tintin in the land of the Soviets. When it comes to a Tintin book kept under wraps, everyone thinks the same thing. Tintin in the Congos, where everyone's favorite Belgian reporter engages in casual racism and slaughters half the animals in Africa. But as uncomfortable as that volume is to modern eyes, writer-artist Hergé had no problem with updating and reissuing it later alongside his newer Tintin books. In fact, there's only one of his early works that he refused to redraw to match his later style, the very first Tintin story of all in the land of the Soviets. But why? Mainly because the first couple Tintin stories were forced on Hergé by his editor, an ultra-conservative priest who wanted to educate kids at the, about things like the evils of communism. And by educate, we mean make a bunch of stuff up. Hergé took everything he knew about Russia from one sensationalist book aimed at criticizing the communist regime. Due to some of the extreme examples depicted, things like fake factories designed to trick people into thinking industry is strong, and elections held at gunpoint, Hergé would later call the story a transgression of my youth. Ironically, historians would later note that his depictions were pretty accurate to how terrible living conditions in Russia actually were at the time. Regardless, Hergé kept Tintin in the land of the Soviets off shelves for years, only relenting when bootleg copies began flooding the market, because you might as well get paid, right? Even then, he would only allow the original, crude, black-and-white strip to be reprinted without any colorization or updating, although we might... we. Although we'll be mightily disappointed if some fanboy isn't working on that, even as we speak. Yeah, I mean, the Tintin books are a weird history of themselves with, like, the racism and everything. But right. Wasn't there a movie recently? Yeah, they did, like, uh, uh, Steven Spielberg did a movie. It had, like, Simon Pegg and them doing the voices of it and stuff. Yeah. It was actually really good, I thought. The Tintin books are good, and they made an animated series in the 80s that was really good. But they have a lot, the books have a lot of problematic stuff in it, like racism. And he's traveling all over the world, so like, there's ones where he goes to like, China, and it's very racist portrayals and stuff. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. But like, um, the whole thing about like, kind of, the gist of it is like, that he made up stuff about the countries, right? Right. It, that doesn't seem like it's even that big of a deal for writers, because don't most writers do that? I mean, you should do research, yeah. but most writers don't do research that much. They just kind of make it up. They just wing it, <laughs> yeah. Sound authoritative and keep going. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, how many times have you read a book and, like, if you if you're like me and you go and look up something and you find out like oh it's nothing like that <laughs> yeah no, no I, that's, that's very true, true. Um, um i am actually 
Well, um, I can think of like 15 examples all at once. I can't figure out where to start. Um, <laughs> I'm currently listening to a book when I ride the bus every day, which is an adventure all its own, but um, about the Colonial Parkway killings. And it's really interesting to hear things that I have been told by authority figures and by articles and all of that kind of stuff. Like, this is the truth. And then to go back and hear, well, this is what the police report says. And this is what the eyewitness says. And, like, I think a lot of times people just, if you speak with confidence, that becomes the truth. So I get that. But I still think it's socially responsible to be like, hey, actually, I know for a fact that that was only done to damage people. Yeah. And I, I think, like, I've always said with people, like, they're like, do you research your stories much? And I was like, I research up to the point where I find interest in the things I'm using. Uh-huh. Like, like, it's almost like the, in today's age, it's harder to do this, but they used to do a lot of stuff, like, even like, say, Marvel Comics. When they created the Incredible Hulk, they had gamma rays mutating. We, we all know, if you know anything about gamma rays, they're not that big of a deal. They're not that bad. Mm-hmm. for you and stuff they went and mutate somebody into a hulk into the hulk right? yeah <laughs> but i mean very few things yeah but back then they used to take little science things they borrow it it sounded neat so they would use it for stuff it's the same thing with like nuclear energy they used to use it like that a lot mm-hmm. like and stuff but that it would not actually do it wouldn't make a giant ant or anything like that right and i just wonder like it was it a different time when he wrote this that they were expecting novels to do differently or I don't know it just seems kind of odd to me that because I've read so many books where there's nowhere near close to being what it is especially when it comes to location and cultures yeah and we fetishize cultures especially here in the US we look at other cultures and it's automatically savage or it's exotic and Mm-hmm. You know, and most places are just as boring as where we are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, and they're just their own thing. Like, that's yeah. somebody else's normal. Yeah. No, I can see that. Um, maybe then, maybe it is just intent. Like, yeah, I mean, not that I think it's, it's different. But that it was mean. Yeah, like you said, with your talking about that, that, uh, that non it was a non fiction book, right? The uh, parkway? Yeah. Yeah. With yeah. something like that, and like you're writing, so when you write nonfiction, I think you automatically are saying like this is the truth. Yes. Yeah. So in a way, like that, that's a little bit different than fiction. I think. I mean, even if you dramatize that, you're still making a fictional account of a real event. So in a lot of ways, you would still be kind of held to more facts than normal yeah i think so but yeah and so in in this case like that's i mean that's what he was doing right saying this is how it is and those that it's fiction but and those books back then were kind of used as a it's almost like the ripley's believe it or not like he wrote about some stuff and like did accounts of stuff that wasn't true because it, it was almost like, here's this land, it's this. Mm-hmm. And, and Tintin was almost like that, too, in a way. It was like, travel to here, or to there. 
and he was wasn't presenting it as the facts of it. Yeah. 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 I don't know. <laughs> All right. Um, I do think, I think it's, it's interesting, interesting though that his like, like the, the one. The, the one, one that he won't, he won't update, update and fix and redo is this one. But other ones he was willing to go through and make it less horrible. And Yeah, I mean, in a way, I think some of the changes they made to some of the 1010 books weren't good in, in another way. Because it, like, probably... Prob- skin like problematic stuff <laughs> uh can be used as an education so if you don't hide yeah. it you can use it as an education thing but then going back and i think what they did some of them i could be mistaken all right go ahead i'm gonna mute myself <laughs> uh i think in some ways they used to like uh in these newer editions of some books they would actually take like like uh, characters have darker skin, and that they would just lighten the skin, mm. and then they would say that's fixing it, or they would take them out and make them like white characters. I don't think it's really good because it's not educating people the way things are, were, and we don't remember that right. that the literature yeah. used to be this way. It that the bad. I took a uh, a history of television class when I was in school, and it. I don't know if you know the a really old TV show, The Honeymooners. I have heard of it. I, I just haven't ever seen it or anything. And they had like a famous line where he would say, you know, bang, zoom to the moon. And he's basically saying he's going to knock his wife out. Right, right. And they talked about how like that show's never shown on TV anymore. And it's like, is that a good thing that's never shown on TV anymore? Or should we show it and then talk about the issue of like, well, this was appropriate then. It was okay then. This was a joke. It was used a lot in literature and, and in TV and stuff then. Is it better just to erase it? Because I think in yeah. a way, like what he's, what people are doing with some stuff is they just want to erase it. And that doesn't yeah. help us. Yeah. No, I agree. It's sort of sanitizing history and being like, no, we never did that. No one's had to overcome that. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point too. I feel like, um, for such a lighthearted topic as I thought this one was going to be, we are having some deep conversations, and I have a lot of thinking to do after this. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. Number four, Nikolai Gogol, Dead Souls 2 and 3. These days, a guy named Nikolai Gogol could only be a Russian mobster or a video game boss, and really, Dead Souls sounds exactly like a first-person shooter. But 150 years ago, it was also an acceptable writer's name. In fact, Gogol was one of Russia's most influential authors, going on to inspire the only other, excuse me, the only two other Russian writers you've ever heard of. Uh, oh God, I cannot say these names. I know them, I hear them, I cannot say them. Uh, Nabokov, and, oh, you should jump in and help me out here. Dostoevsky? Yeah, Dostoevsky. Okay. I can hear it in my head, and it just, my lips will not make that sound. Um, 
He was already famous when he penned his masterpiece, Dead Souls, a modern updating of Dante's Divine Comedy. Despite being hailed as his, as his greatest work, Gogol saw it as a pale introduction to the great epic poem which is taking shape in my mind and will finally resolve the riddle of my existence. He intended to write a complete trilogy that would prompt social reform and actually save Russia from itself because writers like melodrama. So what happened? Zealotry, plain and simple. While working on the sequel, Gogol came under the sway of Matvey, somebody whose last name starts with a K, a fanatical priest who convinced him that his creative work was an abomination to the Lord. Thus, on the evening of February 24th, 1852, Gogol burned the nearly complete manuscript of Dead Souls 2 and any notes he had made for the third volume. Only a few scraps escaped the flames. He then immediately ceased eating and died nine days later, proving that you don't have to be mentally unbalanced to destroy your life's work, but it helps. Well, this actually, like, reminds me going back to the thing we were talking about, like, people deleting their work online. Mm -hmm. I know people who, like, have writer's wheels, which it's good for, like, creative people to actually have because it lets people know who owns this, who's the executive of your works. I know people who's put it in theirs that they want everything deleted. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Would you want all your, like, would you want all Crime Crazy deleted? Crime Crazy, no. But I feel like that's already out there. Um, some of those NaNoWriMo things and, like, letters and journals and things that I've kept, it's not so much that I care about it for me, but I wonder if it wouldn't be better if just, like, my family didn't ever have to read it or... You know, yeah, I, A, I'm yeah, not a terribly interesting person, and, like, nobody's going to publish it and make a big deal out of it, right? So it's, it's really a non-issue. But I wonder if there are some things that I have written that I wouldn't want my children to read, and then... Well, uh, let's turn, turn the thing you said earlier. If you were famous, you were a famous writer and stuff... Mm-hmm. And you had stuff unpublished. Would you want it to be published after your after you died? I think that I probably would have a couple of categories of work because I feel like I would still have those things that I wrote just for me that I never intended anyone to see, and I wouldn't want them to get out there because I wouldn't want to hurt other people. And then I would probably have things that I had written that I wasn't yet proud of. And that, I don't care. Yeah, go for it. Publish it. Show everybody. Like, that's the process. That's where it came from. Sort of like, you know, my, my private journals that I wrote because I needed an outlet versus the first ten episodes of Crime Crazy, which just kind of sucked. Right? Like, I'm okay with the I'm not proud of it, but I do think writing is very much an outlet for me. And there are things that I need to write to get out of my head that I don't want anyone else it would hurt other people, right? They're not even things I really believe or really mean. It's just something I had to get out. So that I do. I think I would like that stuff to disappear. I know, like the embarrassing crap. I don't care. I know, like one of the reasons why writers' wills became a big thing was actually the uh, state of people like Gene Roddenberry, because mm. like, when he died and Tolkien and other people, their families took all their little notes 
and all their little things and started making like TV shows, movies, other books out of them. Yeah. yeah. See, but then, then I'm, I'm torn, torn because, because like Douglas, Douglas Adams, Adams and, you know, yeah, there, there, are, there are people who died before, before I was ready for them to stop, stop writing. writing. <laughs> <laughs> If there's, if there's anything, anything that they, they have, have I, I, I want, want to hear it. it. Yeah, Douglas Adams so is like a consumer of it. Yeah. He's like my favorite writer, and he wrote, what, I think six fictional books or something like that? Like, yeah, not yeah. many at all. Yeah. And he had a book published after, like, Selma and Doubt, which basically had all that stuff, yeah, all yeah. his notes and everything together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and... and and, and that's, that's kind of one of those, those things, things where I think if I were him, I would be good with that because, you know, it's, it wasn't maybe finished, but that's the only problem with it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting when you think about it. Like, would you want your kids to be part of your legacy or their own? Oh, I guess, oh, I guess that's, that's true. true. But I'm but not I'm sure not that you can't, can't be both. both. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I'm not sure. All right, so we have just about reached this hour mark. Do we want to do one more? We can do one more, and I'll put it on the extra thing. Okay. okay. All, right. All right. Mark Twain, 1601. You may be wondering what Mark Twain a man known for holding absolutely nothing sacred could possibly have written that he would want to bury. A story about incest? A cookbook for human flesh? The reality is almost disappointing. A bunch of heart and sex jokes. 1601, conversation, as it was by the social fireside in the time of the Tudors, uh, is a pastiche that Twain wrote to try his hand at archaic writing and to skewer those who believe the Elizabethan era to have been some time of strict propriety. It chronicles fictional fireside chat between Queen Elizabeth, several noble women, Shakespeare, Sir Walter Riley, and others. To give you an idea of what we're dealing with, there's a sample line. In the heat of you talk, it's before... Oh, good lord. Uh, it's about breaking winds uh, and yielding an exceeding mighty and distressful stink that everybody laughs at. Okay, okay, so, so not as most mature story, story, but why, why publish it anonymously and wait 26 years before acknowledging authorship? authorship. At, At one point, point Twain was apparently was proud of 1601, 1601, writing to a friend, for between you and me, the thing was dreadfully funny. funny. I don't I often write anything that I laugh at myself, but I can hardly think of that thing without laughing. Of course, years later, he would say, if there's a decent word findable in it, it's because I overlooked it, so take your pick. Written in between his two best-known works, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, it's like Twain didn't want, want potential bad press over a relatively minor story to cast a negative light on his recent and upcoming masterpieces. Probably smart, since 1601 was considered unprintable by mainstream publishers from 1880 all the way until the early 1960s, when Elizabethans making jokes about pubic hair became more socially acceptable. <laughs> I, I think, think that, that one is just fantastic. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I, I, agree I agree with the reasoning. Like, like it, does it does sound like, like hey, let's uh, save this for a more appropriate time and not mess up my actual writing career. career. But at the, at the same, same time, time, like, it's just kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> but didn't Benjamin Franklin publish books on, like, farts and stuff? 
Yeah, yeah I, I think, think so. so. <laughs> <laughs> good enough for Benjamin. Good enough for me. <laughs> I, I'm currently living with a almost three three year old next week and her brother who is five and their brother who is nineteen and it is nothing but fart jokes in my mind. So I feel like this would fit in very well on our bookshelf. And then the older ones are teaching the younger ones, right? Oh, oh so, so, so much so. so. <laughs> yeah. And so they think it's funny when they get in trouble. trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Mark Twain, like, I, I like Mark Twain. I'm not a huge Mark Twain fan, but, like, it makes me want to seek that book out and maybe read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that Twain is very um, problematic. Like, there's a lot of, well, sort of like you were talking about, about the Tintin Tin books, right? There is a lot of overt racism in Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn um, and, and other works, and, but I do really enjoy <laughs> Are you a fan of the classic Valiant comics? Do you miss Magnus meeting up with Fry? Do you remember when Solar was doing uh, adult things with EXO? Well, okay, no, that didn't happen. But you just never know what could have happened in the Valiant book in those days. From issue to issue, it was the best comics company going. So, if you've ever dreamed in Barry Windsor Smith pencils, you might just want to check this out. I wish I was brave on Tin Pod Radio. Mm-hmm. 